0: Welcome to Likeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Likeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Likeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash likevillepodcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Another way to support the podcast is by switching to Brave. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome or used Safari without even thinking, but it's time to upgrade to something better. With other browsers, ads and trackers follow your every move and slow down your loading speeds. The Brave browser is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all the trackers and spyware. So it works just like Chrome, except cleaner and faster. By using Brave, you protect yourself from surveillance. Many popular sites have over 100 trackers, and these trackers can collect your inferred sexual orientation, political views, religious beliefs, even your location, sometimes right up to your exact GPS coordinates. Brave is a privacy-focused browser that blocks all of this out of the box. It also blocks all those annoying banner ads and those commercials on YouTube. Brave even shows you how many ads and trackers you've blocked in your lifetime, and how much data and time you've saved by doing so. It's really satisfying. Switching to Brave is also super easy and quick. You can import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in Brave in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. All you have to do is go to brave.com slash likeville and switch over. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to a new browser. Be ahead of the curve. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode.
1: Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking again with philosopher Daniel Weinstock. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, John. Hey, so we are <laughs> going to be talking about uh, this sort of fascinating slash horrifying um, sort of controversy that is happening right now um, here in Quebec, which um, to is probably, as far as I can tell, it's not very well known outside of no um, our our culture, but it's a really really big. Big discussion that is dividing departments. It's dividing friends. Absolutely, I've yes. I've been I've been sent petitions by numerous colleagues and been uh, defriended uh, when I refused to sign them. um you know, all these things. So maybe can you just sort of for our sure. listeners who are all over in you know, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, the states? Can you just explain what the fuck is going on?
2: Right. So so about uh, about three weeks ago, I think. Um, a young uh, lecturer at uh, the University of Ottawa, uh, which is a bilingual university, it's important to uh, point that out, uh, in the nation's capital, uh, teaching a class in um, cultural studies, basically uh, gender and, and gender and art. I think uh, was the specific topic, and uh, she was talking about how. Um, uh, oppressed minorities, minorities that have been marginalized historically, have had a uh, a practice, a tendency to um, take terms that have been used as, as 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 insults, as as terms of as derogatory terms that were aimed at them. Uh, target that they were targeted by, and turning them into terms of empowerment, term uh, identity markers. And the example that uh, she was actually focusing on in the context of her lecture was the word queer. And she told students, you know, if you're 20 years old, living in uh, Ottawa uh, today, you probably don't even realize that the word queer was at some point a term of uh, abuse, a, a derogatory term. And she started going through other examples in which this has been done. And she came uh, quite quickly to the N-word. Um, and she didn't say the N-word. She actually uttered the word uh, that the N-word refers to, uh, apparently on a couple of occasions to make the point. Uh, now, now here's where the narratives kind of... Uh, you know it depends on who your source of information is um but on one source of uh, of narrative nothing actually happened during the class it was only later that one of her students emailed her and said you know what i was really uncomfortable by you actually using that word you know a white professor a white teacher shouldn't be using it um she apologized for having been insensitive for having caused uh uh you know uh, for having caused hurt um So I I think at that point, uh, two things happened. One was uh, the student also complained, made a complaint to the university. And she also um, engaged in um, an exercise of doxing. So she um, sent around uh, personal information about, I guess her her email uh, signature line must have had information about her phone number. Um, She sent it around on Twitter. Um, And uh, so... On the one hand, the university um, temporarily suspended her with pay to see what had happened, um, inquired uh, into what had happened, talked to students, realized, okay, you know, her intention was clearly not derogatory. Her, her intention was clearly not to use the term as a term of abuse, but uh, to uh, refer to it as a, um, a sort of historical, uh, interesting historical episode. Reinstated her in her class um, Having, though, uh, and this is interesting, um, shunted all of the students who were in her section into another professor's section um, as a default, giving students the option to sort of go back into her section if they chose to, uh, something which only one student did. Um, on the other hand, there, there was a campaign of quite, uh, you know, uh, uh, shocking and and uh, you know uh, unforgivable um, uh, abuse that was uh, heaped on her as a result of a doxing uh, campaign that the student had uh, had engaged in. Uh, she was threatened. She was um, uh, you know uh, quite quite understandably sort of fearful for her uh, personal security. A couple of days later, the university, through the voice of the principal, the rector, the president, I'm not sure exactly what the name of the top person is there, uh, issued a statement uh, basically saying, look, uh, Professor uh, Leutnant Duval is her name, uh, has full academic freedom, but she has to understand that, uh, you know, um, if you use this term, um, then you're going to quite foreseeably be met with uh, quite a strong uh, uh, reaction. Um, and you know, uh, so lines to the effect of um, "It's not for a white person to determine when a microaggression has occurred." Right? It may very well be the case that her uh, intention was um, was not to to, to hurt, but uh, it is of the nature of uh, kind of racial microaggressions that uh, they, as it were, uh, transcend the intention. Of uh, the utterer of the person making the statement, uh, and can be received as hurtful by uh, people who may very well that very day have heard the term uh, hurled at them uh, as a term of abuse. Um, and so, from there, um, the proverbial can I can I can I can I use the S word in this uh, broadcast, uh, John? Of course,
1: you can use any word but the N word, Daniel.
2: So, at, at that point, the proverbial <laughs> shit hit the fan. Um, some professors from the University of Ottawa wrote a letter basically um, uh, defending her and um, in particular um, uh, opposing the fact that she'd been suspended. Um, and we have since, uh, you know, it's now been a couple of weeks, there has basically been a sort of back and forth of increasingly uh, vitriolic uh, both communication and formal statements, letters, etc., uh, opposing, on the one hand, people who think that, uh, you know, academic freedom basically requires that a professor be able, uh, in a context like the one that she was in, you know, obviously not using the term uh, as a derogatory term, but, um, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of scientific academic context, they should be able to use the term. And on the other hand, people who think that, well, no, you know, uh, there's certain terms that, you know, white people just don't get to use in a context where uh, the term is still being used uh, as an epithet, uh, ep- I always have trouble with that word, uh, word epithet uh, of abuse, um, uh, which, which can, which can you know quite predictably and foreseeably be quite hurtful for people, and you're absolutely right that the the tenor of it has been um, quite shocking uh, the tenor of the debate it's not just a, an interesting debate between people uh, about the limits of uh, you know uh, uh, the prerogatives of academics in the classroom. it has become uh, a matter of you know if you are uh, if you think that there should be a limit on the use that can be made of certain terms by academics, you are basically. Um, And this is not an exaggeration, this is something that I've heard from uh, in one of the communications that I've had. You are basically complicit in ending the uh, experience of the modern, of of, of the Western university 800 years in the making. You are complicit in (laughs) in the destruction of that ideal. Um, so, uh, and you're also, by the way, complicit in, so at the same time, um, there was a, you know, this absolutely horrible event in France where, uh, a student who, uh, had been, uh, offended by the use that one of his teachers, I think in a high school had made, uh, had shown the, uh, the Dutch uh, cartoons uh, depicting the prophet um, and he was he was murdered in the streets he was beheaded uh, and so uh, you know these two events have been brought into uh, sort of uh, a parallel and uh, you know again, people will be uh, accusing uh, those those who think that uh, limits should be made um, limits should be respected by academics on use of abusive terms. You are basically complicit in the murder of uh, of this person on the other side of the yeah, equation.
1: Just, just so our listeners like know
2: Daniel's not just like, I have been accused of exactly what yeah, Daniel yeah, just yeah, said
1: no, I, twice in the last five days.
2: I mean the 800 years of, of, uh, you know, that's something that I only heard once, but, uh, you know, the, no, the, I'm talking the, about the, the
0: complicit that, in the that, beheading. Yes, absolutely. Of
2: that's all over the place. And on the other side, on the side of people who, um, you know, are, are, you know, think that, uh, uh, that she was wrong, and um, she did apologize, by the way, so I think she herself realized that she had perhaps used the term in a negligent manner. Um, on the other hand, you've had this um, this this outbreak of, of doxing, of, of violent threats uh, being uh, preferred uh, to her, so it has escalated to a point of, uh, just to, to an unbelievable point, um, and you're right, that though, last time I looked, the University of Ottawa was in Ontario. The <laughs> lo- I mean, it is very close to the border. You can walk over from uh, uh, Gatineau. But the the, the, the the locus of the explosion of vitriol uh, has really been in, in Quebec. Um, you know, I- isn't,
1: isn't the University of Ottawa the...
2: You know, correct me if I'm wrong. You're in the law school at McGill, but yeah. uh,
1: the uh, isn't it the only university outside of our province
2: that teaches uh, the the code civil, uh, the civil code? Would it be the only one? Um, it, it might very well be. I'd have to I'd have to check, but it might very well be. I wonder whether uh, you know, given the presence of uh, substantial uh, francophone minorities in, in 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 Saskatchewan and Manitoba, whether there's anything. Uh, There, but it could very well be the law school. Because the the
1: reason why I bring this up is because I I really feel like, um, for a lot of my friends that I grew up with, my francophone friends that I grew up with, they sort of thought as they thought of the University of Ottawa as being, kind of an outpost of our province. That was like that was like in in the same way that the West Island is a little piece of Ontario and Quebec. They sort of thought of like half of the University of Ottawa as being like. Our territory,
2: yeah, and I, and I think that you know the, the University of Ottawa is is in effect the only really fully bilingual university in Canada. Uh, depending on who you talk to uh, there, and depending on what department or faculty uh, you're you're talking about. Uh, you know, some people will say it's not really a bilingual university. It's two universities, one English, one French, that have been kind of scotch-taped together. Uh, but you're right that, uh, you know, it is so close to to, to Quebec. It's just over the uh, the river, and, uh, you know, the proportion of Quebec students who probably go there is not insubstantial, and it does have this significant uh, civil code, uh, mostly francophone, not exclusively, but mostly francophone, um, subdivision uh, within the Faculty of Law. Now, at the same time as this is happening, um, you know, there's another uh, kind of uh, scandal or, or controversy brewing um, at the University of Toronto around freedom of, of, around academic freedom. So this is a story which you've probably heard of, of an appointment in the Faculty of Law uh, for a human rights program that is run through the Faculty of Law um, that had um, concluded um, and that had, uh, uh selected a woman from uh, a european woman um verbal agreement had apparently been reached negotiations as the start dates and salary were uh Uh, were being conducted, and uh, abruptly, um, an end was put to the search by the dean. Now, uh, the allegations, and this is still being investigated, is that uh, pressure had been placed on the dean by a very prominent uh, judge in Ontario um, because of uh, this woman's uh, stand on Israel-Palestine and some of the writings that she'd done on Israel-Palestine, which painted Israel in a very dark light. Um, And this has been, you know, there have been 25 articles in the Globe and Mail um, uh, on this. It's been a a huge controversy in Ontario. But I've talked about it with journalists who are on the education here in Quebec. They have no idea that this is happening at the same time as we are having this debate about so it's been very for, informative and instructive about a whole bunch of things but in particular about the informational bubbles that we uh, we we live in this has been the university of ottawa thing has been the most important thing on the minds of many of my colleagues for going on two weeks now maybe even more and yet uh, the reporting that they that they are fed has given them absolutely no information on this other uh controversy, so it really does tell us something about uh the the you know the the two uh, two informational solitudes at the very least so yeah uh,
1: uh, we we actually we had our last guest on the podcast uh, we haven't put it up yet, but should be up in I guess a couple of days but uh, was Greg Lukianoff, who's the president of the Foundation for individual rights in education the the fire. Um, Foundation, okay, and uh, and he—that's one of the things that he said, which I thought was so fascinating. He said, you know, when I first started, um, you know, heading this organization, like there was there was an understanding when you went to people uh, who were, you know, whatever libertarian or communist or progressive or liberal or you know, left-leaning, right-leaning, or religious or atheist, when you went to these people who were being um, having their academic freedom um, limited in some way because of their politics or their, their views, there was an understanding when you spoke to those people that there's a, a larger ideal here, and people, lots of different people... Across the political spectrum, across you know, different points of view religiously are experiencing this stuff He said increasingly now, what he sees is exactly what you 're talking about is this this um, sort of these epistemological like kind of bubbles right where people yeah. only they only hear if you 're watching like you know p b s and you're watching, you 're watching you subscribe to democracy now or, you know, you listen to particular podcasts or you watch Fox news or you watch, you know, Tucker Carlson and stuff like that. You are only hearing about the times in which, um, you know, somebody that you see as being on your side is having their academic freedom impeded. And you just, you literally, and so he says, you end up believing that it's completely one-sided when in fact He said, you know, what I'm just so frustrated about is that people don't realize that actually what we are living through right now is not some sort of, you know, as academics, it's not that we're living through some sort of uh, kind of progressive woke takeover of academia, nor are we living through some sort of like Trumpist takeover or something like that or a corporatist. It's actually that administration." are seizing a lot more power for themselves yeah, right. vis-a-vis yeah. students and faculty, and they are more and more flexing their muscles for all sorts of reasons.
2: And using using all kinds of pretexts to do so. Sure, uh, sure. I sure. just got a, uh, you know... Um, so there are a couple of things that, you know, that, that what you say... The one thing which I, I think really has to be part of this discussion is that what you say is made... I mean, Cass Sunstein... Uh, talked about uh you know the the the, the creation of uh, opinion bubbles uh as a deleterious impact of the internet like 15 years ago in in um republic 2.0 uh, uh, in a bunch of books um and, but it, it's it's been accentuated by the fact that essentially we only, you know, in the context of the pandemic, that's all we have, right? Where do we get occasionally divergent points of view or divergent sources of information? Well, by walking around on our campuses, bunking, bumping into colleagues, having chats, uh, you know, uh, uh, just by the side of, 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 of a building. Oh, did you hear about this? Oh, no, I didn't hear about that. You know, I mean, and that has been completely cut out of our lives for, you know, at this point, the better part of a year. So what do we do? We get up. We uh, turn on our computers um, and um, we go on the internet to be sort of confirmed in our views by the only people who we're interacting with, who are you know the people in our in our in our bubbles. So I think that um, you know the the, the 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 pandemic has 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 reinforced the tendency in a very very problematic way um, that was already that was already out there. We just don't have uh, the kind of everyday correctives. Uh, to our bubbles that come just from having a normal uh, you know pre-pandemic life of of, of human interaction um, I, you know the other thing that I, I would say you know you're absolutely right you know the you only see the threats uh, to academic freedom that come from the uh, the 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 places that you're already inclined to be suspicious of, and so you know the threat. One of the reasons that might explain the fact that uh, the threat at the University of Toronto, um, you know, has has is has gotten zero traction is that you know it doesn't. It's not part of the. You know, it might not be as much part of the sort of we're looking at this uh, the, the direction from which uh, this threat is coming from. Um, uh, here as it is there. But, you know, I mean, um, I have, I got an email from a friend recently in an American University who is telling me that she got an email from, not from her administration, telling her that um, would she consider moving a section, oh, I can't remember what it was, on intersectionality out of her syllab- syllabus or something like that, because um, they were unsure and worried about some recent Trump uh, directives that would remove funding. Uh, from schools that taught, uh, what they consider to be racist material, which is material that brings up the relevance of, you know, it's a strange sort of, uh, Twilight Zone world in which, uh, racism now is, uh, consists in alerting people to the importance of the way that in which race has been constructed as a line of advantage and disadvantage. Um, you know, historically, if you bring that up now, you are a, racist or a racialist we're supposed to be uh you know sort of post-race now and that means that teaching critical race studies or teaching um you know uh any any sort of critical uh vocabulary like that is coming under fire um to the point where university administrations seem to be uh getting a little bit um you know uh Uh, worried about it and directing their professors to you know, uh, November 4th 4th is just around the corner Uh, let's wait and see who gets elected but for the time being you please cool it on the um, radical stuff in your syllabus please
1: Yeah, well that's the the whole 1619 project and stuff like that and I, you know, what was amazing to me when I heard Trump talking about that and his circuits, talking about that on Fox News and everything is that I you know I know a lot of a lot of professional historians and American historians who special who you know who specialize in this stuff and they you know pretty much all of them told me that they had problems with the 1619 project. They felt like you know there were various kinds of distortions here and there, but nobody, literally nobody, even like really conservative people that I know historians none of them said this shouldn't exist none of them said that this is like uh that this is like sort of fake news or that this is like something they, they just said well you know i think it's uh it, it, it's sort of it's kind of lopsided and it you know it it presents like a very you know the typical acad- academic kind of bullshit like they yeah. said you know it, it's but they thought you know in terms of um as something that you would present to let's say high school students um, or, you know, where you're trying to, or like intro courses, you know, in in college or community college and stuff where, where the biggest problem is getting engagement from the students, right? This is something that's very engaging, right? It gets people really fired up. It gets them interested in history. And you know what, if they continue on that road, they're going to learn a bunch of other shit and they're going to end up with a more kind of nuanced view. Uh, So so what if this particular project, you know, it, just saying you want to ban it, it just reminds me of the worst tendencies that we see here at home in Quebec history, where it's like we need to completely uh, whitewash all of the dark parts of our history. Right. Because if we don't, we won't adequately um, sort of inculcate pride in our culture which of course you and I are a complete refutation of this because we know about like the ugly parts of our culture and we're still like, you're like one of the most patriotic Quebecois guys I know aside from me. (laughs) So like, you don't have to, you don't have to see everything as perfect in order to be like a hardcore patriot. Yeah. Yeah, it's very it's very odd. But let's let, getting back to the original sure, sure, thing sure, yeah. about the the word I want to sort of fly by sort of uh, an argument by you. Tell me what you think of it, because this is what yeah. I've said to a number of colleagues who've tried to get me to sign petitions and and all this stuff. I teach this class. I've been teaching it for a long time at John Abbott College called, called Good and Evil. And in that class, we deal with. Uh, we deal with like ethnic cleansing, you know, genocides, the Holocaust, uh, we deal with serial killers. We deal with all sorts of like really, really ugly, horrible things. Right. However, in that class, I have never, ever shown an image or a video clip of any of these atrocities that we're talking about. Right. Um, and we've, we've covered, uh, you know child pornography snuff films a lot of really dark things that humans have done to each other i have never ever ever um shown video clips because i think that it's uh those things are so violent and upsetting that um you know for a lot of people in the room it's just going to their emotional reaction to those images, you know, showing like images of emaciated Jews, you know, your people concentration camp, uh, you know, in, you know, piles of bodies and things like that showing, you know, beheaded uh, people from ISIS showing these things. It adds nothing to the classroom experience. All it does is it upsets people, some people so much that, uh, their emotion, their emotional response overwhelms their ability to have an intelligent conversation about that thing. So, I feel like saying the N word in class is is exactly in in my mind. It's exactly in the same category as showing um, a clip from some really misogynistic, you know, porn thing on Pornhub, or showing like an ISIS. In order to talk about those things, i don't think
2: it helps at all right so 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 i, I agree i agree and and uh so you know I put up a post i i I decided in the first uh when, when the story broke uh, you know I have to say uh you know um, my heart sank partly uh because um you know i i, I Yeah, my heart sank, but it also... Your
1: heart sank, just say it, Daddy, because people you thought knew better didn't. Well, so
2: my heart sank because... Well, because I knew that this was going to be another uh, mudslinging fight. And I also think... uh, Two other things. I think that we are in... um, So I talked about the fact that, you know, we're basically living... Uh, looking at our computer screens for 18 hours a day now, uh, and not really interacting with, uh, you know, human beings except very episodically, other than the, the one that we, the ones that we have to be, uh, living with. And that gives rise to some distortion in the public discourse. We're not talking to the same wide range of people that we would normally be talking to when, uh, when, when life is normal. But the other thing is, you know, I think that we're living, you know, we're now almost eight months into this pandemic. There's a kind of a low level, you know, for most of us who haven't been touched directly by the pandemic, uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, what I would imagine living in wartime in a place that isn't literally having bombs lob- lobbed on it, like, like, uh, like London during the Blitz, where there you go from, you know, low level anxiety to high anxiety. So we're kind of living with this sense of this, this danger all around us. Um, But because it's not a a clear and present danger at every second, it's a little bit insidious. It works its way, uh, you know, it's not like having the lion right in front of you, uh, burying its fangs. It's sort of like being aware of this vague danger somewhere out there, you're not exactly sure where, kind of like Stephen King, the fog, or something like that. And we're also kind of exhausted. We're, we're, I think that partly because of the anxiety, uh, but just partly also because of the way in which our lives have been changed. We are, um, I think all of us at some level of close to total emotional and psychological depletion. I certainly feel that in my own case. I feel like, you know, things that are, uh, fairly minor set me off in ways that they never would, uh, normally. I have, you know, emotional reactions to things that, uh, you know, I just can't think, you know, I can't can't figure out um, and I, but we're also trying through everything that we're doing to kind of mimic a sense of normalcy right So we have meetings and uh, you know we teach our classes and uh, you know uh, we do all of these things obviously mediated by this technology and I think the combination of all those things is just not good for having um, you know productive conversation about controversial issues. Uh, we're going to be much more likely uh, not to see the other side of the argument, not to even consider it. We're going to be much more likely to view arguments that we don't agree uh, with as attacks and to react in a kind of defensive and, uh, you know, a you attack, we all attack you back kind of way. And so my first kind of thought was, let's just park this discussion for like a year because we're just not going to do it well. The second thought I had was, you know, I mean, I, I have a, you know, uh for better or for worse, profile of the province that makes it the case that when something like this happens around these kinds of issues, I you know immediately turn to my phone and you know five, four, three, two ring. you know, there's the first call, so uh, uh, you know, Professor Weinstock, would you like to be on such and such a show and aside from what I just said, which is you know, I just don't feel that we're in a in a situation uh, where we can have these kinds of conversations productively. Uh, now, I also feel like the last thing that the world needed was uh, another white guy. Um, you know, because I knew that the the and, and this is part of the problem, right? This is a, a symptom of the problem that we're talking about. I yeah, but Daniel,
1: that- you're 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 Jewish. We only let you into the club like 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 a fucking week ago or something.
2: I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but, you know, there's actually like my that- grand my grandfather used to say.
1: Used to uh, anyway. I, you guys yeah, so, really just got here, like, and you know what? It looks like you could be excluded any any day now. So I, know. I, I don't I, I, think I, I am. Like, you know, in, in the oppressive in the op- oppression Olympics, I finished dead last. On my mother's side, we are British imperialists. On my father's side, I'm a direct descendant of yeah. Maryland Maryland slaveholders. I
2: interesting...
1: finished dead last. You do not, Daniel.
2: But but I mean, the fact is the fact is. So there was an interesting, I don't know if you saw it, about a month ago, or uh, there was, uh, you know, Anthony Appiah does, Appia does, uh, Appia does yes. uh, the column The Ethicist of the New York Times Magazine on Sunday. Yeah. Usually I kind of find them um, a little bit uh, trivial. I, but but there was a really good one about three weeks ago. Um, you should look it up, where basically somebody wrote in and said, you know, I'm Jewish and I don't identify as white. You know, what do I do, right? I'm a Jew, an Ashkenazi Jew and, I don't identify as white. Everything that I can see around me that signals whiteness, I do not identify with. Can I? What do I do? And Appiah wrote, I mean, I, I will not uh, be true to the subtlety and nuance of the very long response that he gave to him, which basically says, um, you know, whether you're white or not, is, is, not your, is not entirely your decision. You know, you are at this point in history um, identified as white and, you know, you just have to. And there are things that you can do. Being identified as white, but yourself thinking of yourself as having one foot in, one foot out, that are probably more productive for the cause of, say, racial justice than opting out completely. Than, 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 um, you know. So if I had showed up on television and said, you know, I don't think that many white people um, should, uh, uh, I don't think that as many white people should be uh, sort of piping up on this issue as have been. You know, I think that we should allow um you know black people to you know tell us what they think we should be listening but by the way i'm going to exempt myself from that rule because i'm jewish and therefore not white i think it would have been less productive than actually stepping aside for a while and uh and actually listening because uh you know for all the for all the world uh you know i am uh even though you're right that uh we were let into the club a, a week ago uh Um, You could be excluded (laughs) at any moment. moment, moment. When I see those, uh, those, those people uh, marching through uh, wherever it was. Yeah. yeah, Jews uh, will uh, not replace us. us, uh, I think, yeah, my membership card, I got to make sure that I, uh, anyway. Um, But I think
1: if your last name's Weinstock and you look like a full on rabbi,
2: yeah, I think, especially, uh, especially. I think your, your membership is, is, is
1: it's a trial membership. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you mean I don't get Where, the,
1: yeah, you're I don't not, get you're the, not the, I do not, not fully in yet. Dan. I don't get the platinum. No, you're fully, yeah, no, yeah, no, you're yeah. not
2: fully in. You're not fully I, 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 could, I could see that. But, but uh, putting that aside, now you made me lose my, my train of
1: thought. So <laughs> no, but finally- the, the idea that it's oh, is this, you know, I just, I, I got to interject this for a second. I actually spoke to a couple of my, my black colleagues, uh, I, I'm not going to mention. Well, I haven't mentioned one of them by name, but uh, and I asked them, you know, hey, uh, you know, what do you think about like uh, what uh, me and my friend Daniel talking about this whole like crazy like uh, n-word controversy and stuff like that? Do you do you uh, do you want to like participate in the conversation? You know, would you like to have a conversation about this? And uh, all five of them responded. Um, they said no. They're like it is actually exactly two white guys that need to talk about this, okay. because the people that are not listening, they're not going to listen to us. They're just going to think it's special pleading. Like they, they, they need right. to hear, right. like from people that right. uh, that they identify with why this is fucked up.
2: Right. So, so about a week or ten days after after the thing, you know, I didn't want to go full on public, so I published a, a thing on my on my Facebook page, but didn't make it public. You know, I, you know, I have, you know, 2000 Facebook friends. So I figured that there would be a kind of percolating effect that the, what I, the arguments that I was putting forward would be, be, uh, uh, you know, would get out there. Um, and you know, I basically said, I basically said two things. First of all, um, so, you know, um, I lost. I lost my train of thought. I, I You know, we, we've we've been. We've it was been, really
1: your your post, like actually, like maybe it's because of the pandemic-induced like emotional instability. But your your post made me cry. It was so. And <laughs> yeah. you basically you talked about you. Talk, I yeah. don't have it in front of me, but you you talked about how uh, you know growing up in Quebec, and you're 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 about the same age as me, maybe a couple years older. A couple years. Like, older, yeah. like uh, you know, and you're basically everything you were saying in that post, I fucking heard all that shit growing up. Like all, yeah, so, of You were so, talking about how people would use the word Jew and, as like a verb, I ah, Jewed me down on that price, or ah, the fucking so Jew, yeah. So so
2: here's, here's the interesting thing. So I went to, you know, my parents were, um, were Eastern European Jews because of the strange vagaries of, you know, Jewish history in Europe. My mother uh, basically spent her childhood and into sort of early adulthood uh, in France and became a French citizen. I'm a French citizen. My mother tongue is French. Um, and, uh, um, you know, when, when we lived in a Jewish neighborhood, cause that's what you did, right? Even if you weren't, my parents were not exactly, uh, Uh, you know, good members of the Jewish community in terms of religious observance or anything else. But, you know, the the reflex of, you know, going to live in a place where you're surrounded by your own kind, even if you don't get along with your own kind, is a very powerful one. So we went and lived in a Jewish neighborhood where all of the kids around me were uh, being sent to um, Anglophone schools. I mean, you know, it's always worth reminding people that the reason that Jews sent their kids to Anglophone schools when they arrived from Poland and Russia and whatever was not because they wanted to be Anglophones, but because the Francophone Catholic schools wouldn't have them, right? Um, anyway, so all my friends were uh, going to these English schools and I would take the bus uh, over to Outremont and uh, go to Collège Stanislas which was, you know, just about the most, you know, not only French-speaking, but French from France, um, you know, uh, institution. Most of my teachers were... Um, uh, people who were, you know, from France, some of them doing their military service by teaching in a French school. I was one of two or three Jews uh, in in the in the school to the point where I don't think, aside from my close friends, I don't think that anybody actually knew uh, that I was Jewish. And so, yeah, I recounted, you know, by way of, you know, trying to get people to understand, people who haven't necessarily had a painful experience. Um, sort of term hurled at them uh, constantly. It was part of the uh, ambient linguistic uh you know sort of context that if um you know someone wouldn't share their lunch with you or something or wouldn't lend you a quarter, uh what you would say is, hey, swap a juif, right? Don't be a Jew. <laughs> now yeah. these are we're talking 10, 11 year old kids, right? They had no idea. They they, you know, probably never met a Jew in their lives maybe they didn't even know exactly what the term refers to heard it from their parents you know whatever uh, but the fact is that the term was everywhere and, and,
1: and you're you're hearing this like what uh, 20 25 years away from the holocaust yeah
2: so you know we're talking you know i'm i'm we're talking early 70s so you know i mean my parents um my parents, who themselves were not though they were in Europe during the Holocaust, they were camp survivors. They had friends who you know uh I remember conversations uh in the in the in the in the living room about people talking about people who had perished and people who had made it out by you know just these most incredible stories they were they were part of the atmosphere in which I was growing up i mean my parents didn't you know uh didn't try to shield me from it particularly and you know, I thought it was important that I know that I know what uh what had happened, at this point, yes, that's right, less than 30 years before, if, you know, if, if uh, I'm thinking about, you know, the first time I heard the term, um, you know, I must have been seven or eight or nine years old, which would have been um, in the early 70s. Um, so, you know, the term, and not only the term, but the, the term in French, because that's the language in which I heard it, right, um, was one that I've always had trouble even uttering when I was younger, to just say, je suis juif, was for me difficult because inevitably, and this is something that I think is the case for uh every group that has been uh marginalized and oppressed and that has had a term used in order to, as it were, encapsulate or dramatize that oppression, um, you internalize part of um uh you know part of part of the the, the picture of yourself that is thrown at you uh by uh people and that is as it were um you know, uh, th- 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 that is encapsulated by that, by that term. And so it was a term that I had a lot of trouble owning for the longest time, whereas it's equivalent in English, um, you know, no problems, right. Uh, I lived in a Jewish neighborhood and, you know, I'm Jewish. The most natural thing to say, probably if I'd gone to the kind of school where you, that you refer to, where people would say, don't, you know, don't do me on this. I would have felt the same way about the English term, but, by but this, this by way of saying that, you know, um, Terms are, words are, words can hurt, and you probably don't realize the degree to which words can hurt unless you have yourself been, um, you know, uh, subjected to that kind of, um, you know, to to that kind of term, derogatory uh, term for years and years and years in a context where uh, the oppression uh, that it sort of encapsulates is, Either still happening or not that far behind in history, right? We're not talking about something that happened a thousand years ago, um, and you know. So I, I tried to invite uh, you know some of my friends who felt that really university students should uh, be able to uh, hear these kinds of words without um, you know uh, without anybody needing to sort of uh, cushion them or couch them maybe lacked a little sensitivity to the visceral force that words um, can, can, can have uh, because I really did feel like, so there's this, there's this um, there's this argument that has been used on a number of occasions by many, many, many uh, colleagues, which uh, is the argument that says it's one thing to use a word. It's another thing to mention it, right? So to use a word is does it were to use it in your own voice, um, um, and to mention it is kind of like to point at it. Uh, there are a lot of linguistic utterances in which we're not actually uh, you know, using the word as something that we are saying, but we're pointing out the usage that other people are making of it, for example. So it's called the use-mention distinction. So obviously for the N-word to use it is something that is completely off limits, but to mention it, say in a scientific context, by saying, look, Look at the way in which this term has been used by other people in the past um, is, is something that is perfectly okay. What I wanted to get them to feel is that of course that 's an important distinction, and of course it goes to the intention of the utterer. Of course, uh, nobody is uh, suspecting the woman at the center of the story of having had um, the intention of, of hurting or of demeaning uh, her uh, uh, black students. But the point that I wanted to make is that you just can 't control the effect that the use of the term will have, right? Um, If you have people in your class who maybe, you know, that very day have had a term of uh, abuse, that term hurled at them as a term of abuse, um, you know, to sit down in class and have the word resonate, uh, you know, through their ears, uh, spoken by the figure of authority, usually white, uh, that is the professor, well, it's going to hurt. And going back to your point about, uh, you know, Um, You know, why don't we show all the things that we talk about? Well, because at the end of the day, they are going to put a sufficient number of students into a kind of an emotional state that is just not conducive to learning. Yes, just it's just a fight. fight or flight. It's a so fight, flight, flight or freeze learning. response. You will focus on that word. You will focus on that word, and everything else might as well uh, be, you know, spoken in in you know um, an alien language. And and you want to avoid that because at the end of the day, as a you know, as a pedagogue, as somebody who uh, wants to to teach, you know, a, a lot of a lot of um, you know, there's been a lot of sort of uh, set, satire and contempt uh, heaped at the concept of the safe space, the idea of a safe space. And, you know, there's probably some, uh, you know, it's been taken to extremes perhaps in some circumstances, but the idea that you need to feel in a certain degree of security in order to be receptive to learning is something which just strikes me as a truism. And if the cost of achieving that uh, goal is that a certain word uh, is off limits to me, I can circumlocute it uh, you know, uh, in the way that we have with that word, uh, very easily. Right. I mean, the N word has just become the way in which, uh, you know, non-black people, uh, refer to the N word and it works, right. It's a little bit awkward. It's not as pretty as, uh, you know, we would like it to be, but, but it is, if that is the cost of creating an environment that students who, again, may have had, you know, the real word thrust at them, uh, in some abusive context, you know, that very day, well, I say, you know, um, what is the you know why would we even think about uh uh not incurring that that cost, given the fact that you know i've 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 racked my brains uh, and i can't really imagine not being able to talk of all the things that I want to talk about in virtue of not saying the word right uh, yeah. you can talk about racism you can talk about slavery you can talk about uh you know systematic racism you can talk about uh, all those things you can even Right, have readings uh, or, or, or other artifacts in which the word is present. But I think there's a kind of a moral contract uh, that, that, that sort of goes something like this, where you say, look, we are going to be reading or we're going to be watching things that are going to evoke painful memories, maybe not even memories, painful aspects of the present. And I want to make this environment as, as safe and nurturing for you as possible and one of the ways in which I'm going to try to do that is that you can have my absolute word, that that word will never pass my lips, right? That word yeah. will never pass <laughs> my lips. Um, uh, you know, again, it strikes me as, you know, um, just, I, I can't, it's hard for me to see it as an infringement of academic freedom, given the fact that I can't really imagine not being able to talk of, any of the things, about any of the things that I'd want to talk about, simply because that word um, is one that I have decided to remove from my lexicon.
1: Yeah, and, and and the thing is, is the people who are arguing for this, they so often are, um, they're, they're kind of smooshing together a bunch of different things that academics do. So, you know, if if you were writing uh, like a, an academic paper where you were talking about um, sort of the, let's say, the... Um, Sort of the fight against the KKK in, in Indiana in the 1920s, or if you were talking, if you were like a, a literature prof and you were teaching on, um, you know, the, *To Kill a Mockingbird* or uh, you know *The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn*, in that academic paper, you wouldn't say the N word. You would you would cite all those things um faithfully, you would say what they actually say, right? You would actually do in the same way that like somebody like Robert Abzug inside his book on the Holocaust, uh, inside the vicious heart, he shows all the images and stuff like that. So, you know, there's, there's academic writing and, and that has certain sort of linguistic conventions, but then there's the classroom, right? The and classroom. the classroom, the classroom is a performative space, which should be, should be viewed, as um as like a very akin to theater right so in that in that space there's different linguistic conventions and they're not the linguistic conventions of academic writing or or a meeting among colleagues or a conference they're not the conventions of journalism hip-hop um of of stand-up comedy like Different domains have different linguistic conventions, and, there, and there, you know, and you know, I was arguing with this one guy who's uh, who's a very, very well-known podcaster. He's a prof here in Montreal at the Molson School of Business, and he was saying something very similar to the the complaints that were raised to you that you mentioned just before. Well, you know, the people's intention was not right. to be racist, and. And I said, dude, you teach at the business school. You should know that language is like money. You don't get to decide what the exchange rate for the Canadian dollar vis-a-vis the American dollar is. That is something that, that people together, you know, as, as, as markets, decide those things. You don't get to decide what a word is worth unilaterally. You have to talk to your students and colleagues and figure out you know, what it means to them. And together, we decide what what language means. You, you don't get to say, oh, I intend my Canadian dollar to be worth five American dollars. Oh, well, fucking fine. But, like, doesn't it mean any American has to agree with you.
2: I think that, you know, there, there's, you know, as we... You know, if if you believe that there's such a thing as, as systemic racism, and I do, you know, you also have to believe that systemic racism and other forms of discrimination permeate not just our institutions, but our language, which means that, you know, sometimes we ourselves will um will uh will have words in our vocabulary that we don't even realize are uh you know carry with them a whole history of um you know of of, 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 uh, of discrimination and uh, uh you know, either race, r- racial or or whatever attitudes of of uh, uh, of domination. I mean, I remember the first time it was brought to my attention, very gently and kindly, uh, by someone that uh, the word which we used to use. I don't think anybody uses it anymore uh, uh, because I think that finally it's been sort of rid of the language. I'm,
1: I'm almost completely sure what you're going to say, and I'm so excited. You want to guess? You want to
2: go? A uh, jip?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely one hundred percent. I used that I used that for years until somebody in my exactly. early twenties was like, you know that refers to
2: gypsies, right? Now and are you to blame for not knowing it? Of course not, right? I mean But I never you, use that shit you, again. You never use it again. Uh you never use it again. You learn. I think we're go- undergoing something quite similar today, uh, in um, you know, uh making sure that we refer uh, say to, to, to trans people uh, in using the pronouns that they uh, use to refer to them, themselves. There are going to be mistakes. Sometimes we'll slip up. Um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with, uh, with, with, with trans people who were like, you know, do, don't worry, you know, don't worry about it. It's not like, you know, um, as we move towards, uh, you know, a society that is, uh, you know, the arc of justice is long, but it bends towards justice. Well, the arc of our language perhaps is as well. Um, people are, gonna, are going to. Um, are, I can't are going stand to... that MLK quote. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs>
1: I think the arc of justice bends towards ju- the arc of uh, what is it? The arc of of,
2: of history. Is of history. To I think justice.
1: the arc of history bends towards justice when we bend it.
2: Right, and, and well, yes, that's right. We have to bend it, and one of the ways in which we bend it, I think, is by um, you know becoming aware of uh, the, the the sort of uh, residuals of uh historical painful historical uh relations you know uh in our in our language and start teaching ourselves not to use those terms anymore it'll never be perfect um but you know again the classroom seems to me to be a place where um you know again going back to the point that we were making earlier as people who are pedagogues and these are young you know um there was a, there was an interview on on uh, on one of the French radio shows with uh, a, a, a French francophone a black francophone young black francophone woman broadcaster a media figure um, uh, and I'm having a senior moment now and I forget her name but <laughs> it, it'll it'll come back to me um, who said you know th- that word you know you you hear it when you're five years old right you hear it um, used to refer to you as as lesser, as uglier, as as somehow less than human from the time that you are, you know, you don't have a memory that doesn't include that word as um you know part of the conceptual repertoire that's used to talk about you by other people. So these are the people who twelve years later end up on our uh, on, in our in our classrooms, right? Uh, you know, in your case, uh, at and how, you know, first year Sagep students are what, 17 years old, 16, 17 years old?
1: Yeah, between 17 and
2: 18. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they're not that far from being those scared kids, uh, you know, who um, were, 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 were having those terms hurled at them, um, you know, through their childhoods and marked them in various ways. And I think that our responsibility to them is not, you know, our epistemic responsibilities to them is, um, you know, to... to Give them to understand that we will do whatever we can in order for that space, for the space that is the classroom, to be one in which they can feel that um, you know they are epistemically safe, right? They uh, can put themselves in the kind of mode of receptivity uh, that other you know white students you know don't even have to think about, right? It just is the most natural thing in the world that will allow them to learn um, without having to worry about. Um, you know, these sudden shocks to their system that come from having the professor utter words that, again, have been... So, you know, that point... um, Well,
1: I just want to just return just for a second because you just made me think of it, but your friend uh, Joseph Heath, um, in his book, Enlightenment 2.0, he he talks about... um, He he talks about this concept, which I just thought was absolutely fascinating, and it's sort of... um, He said, he says, you know, the the idea of safe spaces is mostly anti-intellectual and bullshit and a bad idea. However, there's a a kernel in there that is actually extremely important, which you just sort of alluded to in, in what you were saying is that we need, as, as teachers, we need to create a safe space for reason, right? And A safe space for reason means that we have to, as much as possible, do everything we can do to put our students in the frame of mind where they are most receptive to reasonable discussions. Anything you do in the classroom that puts a student into A sort of reptile brain, you know, fight, flight, or freeze mode. Anything you do that kind of triggers them into uh, like painful memories or emotions and stuff like that. That is, you know, regardless of what your politics are, that is actually not a good place for reason. Reason can't live in that place. That's the place where people get tribal, where they get defensive, where they are most likely to engage in motivated reasoning and emotional re- all the stuff that um, that sort of people who are dealing with anxiety and depression learn when they're doing cognitive behavioral therapy that you have to stop catastrophizing, you have to stop if you are if you are saying the n word in class or other sort of analogous things, um, you are actually creating. Um, A place where reason cannot live.
2: Absolutely, and you know, so there's there's another argument that you know that I try to take on in in that in that piece, which which is, well, okay, so you know, where will it stop, right? Where will it stop? If uh, this
1: slippery slope thing, so so
2: you know, there have been so many slippery slope arguments that have been uh, hurled both my way and the way of uh, you know anybody who uh, thinks that we ought to exercise a little bit of self restraint in the vocabulary that we use that says, you know, is it the case that any any word that makes anybody feel um, uh, uncomfortable should be bad, right? And, uh, you know, and and for me, the answer to that question is, well, no, right? Um, You know, unfortunately, we live in a society that has been so um, riven with, uh, with, with equalities and discrimination and um you know negative attitudes towards uh people you know towards towards to, you know towards people with different their sexual identities and sexual preferences towards people who aren't white that you know there probably is you know think about terms of der- derogatory uh terms that have been used to 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 refer to um uh you know to gay people um you know uh there there's probably a small range of 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 terms that we should, really think twice about using in the classroom because they have the same kind of visceral um, or potential visceral impact that the N word has uh, for, for our black students. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, but, you know, I mean, again, we're not talking about, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you hurting my feelings by referring to me as bald, right? We're talking about words that exist against a context of quite deep, Uh, discrimination and oppression that it's still a lived experience for a lot of people so if you if you if you use that as your criterion your slippery slope stops quite quickly right we're not talking about anything Uh, we're talking about terms that are still inscribed in a context of um, either very recent or still lived experience of uh, discrimination across a wide range of areas of life right so um, you know uh, that does strike me as as a way of of stopping the slide down the slippery slope that it's never going to be perfect but that is you know serviceable
1: yeah well m- my response when i've been confronted by that is to say you know this is basically for me at least i mean for you it's a little bit more tricky because you've you've experienced the whole kind of uh, kind of anti semit casual anti semitism thing yeah. i haven't experienced any of that shit ever like i i can you know <laughs> you wouldn't believe. <laughs> I've I've had so many interactions when I was younger with cops where I was completely in the wrong where I was doing cr- you know, I was doing criminal shit and I was treated like a human being and I was driven home and given a stern talking to and let yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. I I you wouldn't fuck me. I'll tell you sometimes. Anyway, like this crazy stuff where like I, I found out later on that this was not the norm. But um the for me, this is basically like an epistemology problem, right? so in my in my intro to epistemology uh, class, like one thing that I go over is I say like you have to you have to sort of try and as much as possible make sure that you have good sources um, for information obviously about the world, but you also have to recognize and identify your blind spots. so for instance, I am mostly colorblind so um, knowing knowing that about myself is an important fact because that means that if I'm if I'm deciding what matches, I ask my wife, I ask Annalisa. I don't um, I don't rely on my own judgment on that, right? Because I I've, I have learned through experience that I do not see color as well as other people. Now, uh, you know Eric uh, Sigang, who's listening to us, the producer of the podcast. Um, he's even more colorblind than me. <laughs> so, um, so he's even more screwed, right? Now, another thing, I have a terrible, terrible sense of direction. It's like the part of the brain devoted to direction is broken in me. So, and it's not even broken in a predictable way where, like, I think we should go left, but we should go right so that I could just say, well, whatever I think, I should do the opposite. It's, it's like, broken. we broken. Sh- it's come, it's randomly broken. Like I think we should go left, and we should go back, you know, or, or forward. Like I think we should go forward, and we should go left, right? So it's it's so. Uh, once again, my wife has a an extremely like incredible like she has like a GPS chip in her fucking head. I swear, but she has a really good sense of direction. So I rely on her or my cell phone if she's not around to uh, say because I I'll get lost in my own neighborhood. Like I really, it's that bad, right? So when it comes to, should you say the N word in class or should you uh, talk about like, um, you know, certain things in class, what I do is I go and ask my students and my colleagues. um, And for me, I've never said the N word in class. Just, I don't know. It just didn't seem like a good idea to me. But there was a couple of years ago, long before the scandal happened here in Quebec, there was uh, a number of things that came up when people were talking about trigger warnings and everything. And my initial reaction to uh, people in my department pushing for trigger warnings was, "This is fucking bullshit!" Like, you know, my 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 knee jerk reaction is like a, a wasp, you know, white guy. middle like white guy, I was just like, "Yeah, fucking this is ah, fucking snowflakes." That was completely my emotional reaction to all of this. But I have recognized that these blind spots exist, and I thought, hmm that could be one too. (laughs) So, so what I did is I did like a questionnaire, an anonymous questionnaire for a couple of semesters in a row, uh, four semesters in a row of my students. And I got a pretty good sample size. I got up to like, uh, like it was like about 600 in the end. Um, And they, and I asked them to, you know, I asked them about a couple of, a bunch of different things. Like, do you find this, Really upsetting if this is like depicted in class or talked about. And and then I asked them to sort of identify, like, are you, you know, a member of this group or that group or everything? And it was totally anonymous and they filled it out. And what I found was that this is absolutely another blind spot because there were about like maybe, you know, I I I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there was like about maybe 10%. Of people who color people of color who said um, you know i don't give a shit right i don't uh I don't care if people say the n word in class at all it doesn't bother me right um now they may be just very tough stoic people uh which is awesome <laughs> i mean, I think it's great to be emotionally resilient and tough. Uh, but, you know, these are the, it seems to me everybody that has been, you know, put out on the, the French press is like a member of that group, you know, so, but the vast majority of the students said, um, you know, if I if I, if I I liken it to a sort of a traffic sign, right, there were like maybe 10% that gave like a green light, and the remaining 90% gave some version of a yellow light or a red light, like right. either, uh, please don't fucking do it at all, or... Uh, If you're going to do it, my God, use a lot of caution. Really, really,
2: like, you know, a lot of, like... My experience with students is, you know, so I get them a little bit older than you, right? Uh, Especially since I've been teaching in the law faculty. So the law students are are usually, uh, about 25% of them are coming straight out of Asia, mostly the francophone students. Um, the tradition is, is, to, is to go to law school or med school straight out of stage. Of but the majority of the anglophone students have at least a degree, you know, a uh, uh, one degree, um, you know, uh, a BA or a BSc in something. Some of them. I mean, I have I've had students coming into law school with PhDs. Um, but you know, we we just have a discussion, right? We look, you know, we're going to be look at. Let's look at the syllabus together. We're going to be dealing with uh, these issues. You know, we read uh, stuff on the legal regulation of pornography, which means that we are going to be referring to, you know. You don't have to go very far. You just read the main Supreme Court decisions on on pornography, and it refers to, um, you know, it doesn't depict, but it refers to, uh, uh, you know, violent pornography. How how are we going to handle this, right? Uh, You know, are there, you know, first of all, I think just reassuring students that you're aware and that you're sensitive to the fact that it's not just your responsibility to impart um, knowledge in this kind of, uh, you know, high professorial tone. You know, we're in the context of the pandemic we're 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 trying to do things for the students to you know get a little bit more of a sense of community. It's, it's really tough. But one of the things that we've been doing is movie night, right? So we we all get together on on Zoom, we chat a little bit about the movie that we're going to be watching. And then everybody watches it at the same time and then we come back into the Zoom room and uh and and chat about it. And so the first movie that we watched, totally cliche, totally, you know, um, no originality whatsoever in this selection. We watched the paper chase, right? (laughs) Do you remember the paper chase Yes, (laughs) with John Houseman, right? Who's this uh, kind of, I don't think
1: that's cliched at all. I think that's actually kind of like a little retro and no, that's interesting.
2: Yeah. Well, for, for me, for, you know, it, it, you got to get it out of the way, right? You just got to watch the paper chase at some point and get it out of the way. But that, that, you know, reassuring students that you are not John Houseman, right? That you are not the kind of person who's going to walk in, steamroller over whatever sensitivities are in there, and walk out, leaving whatever carnage in your wake, I think is in and of itself reassuring. Telling students, look, you know, I'm on your side. I want us to make this a learning experience that will be as um, you know, comfortable as possible. If you anticipate that you might have difficulty with some of the material, get in touch with me. You don't have to do it now. You don't have to raise your hand and kind of, you know, alert all your your your, your colleagues to whatever, you know, uh, issues you might have. Come and talk to me. Um, you know, maybe there's some conversations we could have as a group about how we're going to make this into a, an environment that uh, will deal with these difficult issues uh, in a way that doesn't cause, uh, you know, pain or stress or anxiety to people. And just that willingness is 90% of what, you know, you're 90% of the way there. Um, because it brings you into, and it's not a question of becoming your student's best buddy, you're still going to be giving some people, you know, deep pluses. Um, but it's kind of like confirming that the sorts of things that they are worried about, that they're afraid of, of that they're fretful of, are real things, right, are not um, to be to be dismissed or not to be, uh, you know, poo-pooed. One of the things that pains me the most about the tone of some of the discussion of this last issue is uh, the idea that, um, you know, the feelings that students have are without merit. They should just, you know, um, suck it up, grow a backbone. You're in university now. You know, you've got to be able to take it all in. I think that there's, at the, at a, at the most basic level, a sort of lack of empathy, right? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. A lack of empathy, which you know, I don't know how you teach without empathy. I, 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 I just don't. You know, for me, it's kind of like you know, it's like I can't imagine uh, walking in and not feeling a kind of bond of empathy with my students. If I did, I'd stop. You know, I'd retire. I, I, I take a, I take some kind of uh, you know mental health uh, break because it seems to me to be the absolute minimal condition for a successful pedagogical. Uh, uh, r- r- relationship um, well, to, and-
1: to, to play to play devil's advocate, the, the the argument that I've heard from a bunch of people, including uh, Laura Kipnis, who has run up against this, yeah. you know, in yeah. the in the yeah. states yeah, yeah. a great deal. She she said this the, the other day online when we were debating this whole issue. But like um, the argument that I've heard from from colleagues and from other is that well, you know, yes, that's true. What you're saying. But um, the problem is, and this is where the whole slippery slope argument comes in, right? They say, if you make this, if you engage in this, I'm, I'm using their language here. If you engage in this kind of virtue signaling in the classroom, where you sort of say, hey, I'm a sensitive, uh, you know, I'm a sensitive ponytail guy. <laughs> That's how one person put it, right? Uh, if you say like, I'm a sensitive, like kind of woke that actually, you just uh, you encourage um, you encourage the worst tendencies in a generation that has been raised w- that they've been uh, they've been exposed to a huge amount of therapy and a huge amount of like you know uh, drugs and a lot of like you know sort of pop psychology and garbage and you're, you're encouraging the worst tendencies and that actually what's going to happen. Is rather than this sort of uh, being kind of a, an empathetic gesture that leads to a more kind of safe environment, it actually just encourages a minority uh, within your within your class to sort of really kind of behave badly. Now, okay, my, my I is- will say, but before you respond, I will say that this argument from my personal experience. This argument is not totally without merit, and i 'll tell you why um, I sat for years on a particular on a particular um, committee that dealt with student complaints about uh, about kind of racism and homophobia and sexism and things like that and and sort of tried to adjudicate those things and What amazed me was that like i knew these incredibly you know these old guys that are like they're like you know a year or two away from retirement and they they say the fucking craziest shit like in class and they in the in, you know you you know the types of, and like and the complaints were never against them like i knew people who were like actually openly um Kind of advocating very, very racist positions in departmental meetings. And I would, when I would talk to them socially, like things like that. And the complaints, I would say, no joke. And I've talked to people in the States and Canada, and and they tell me this is the, including our our mutual friend, uh, Francois, uh, like they tell me that this is the same thing all over that 90% of the complaints are complaints made towards super, super progressive profs who their heart is completely in the right place. Their politics are very left. They are so sympathetic to these students. Those, like Laura Kipnis, those are the profs that are getting um, in trouble from from these policies and stuff like that. And so their argument is, um, y- you think that somehow this is going to police the the kind of the bad apples. In fact, it ends up being you know like the the early parts of the French Revolution, right, where it's like it eats its children first, right. So, I mean, what do you think about that?
2: Well, I mean, I, mean, I can only speak from my experience, right. These are issues that uh, you know I haven't I haven't studied uh, in any in any in any depth. I'm, I'm speaking from you know from my own experience. Uh, you know, I, I haven't I haven't experienced that. Although it could be you know it could be that. Uh, uh, it could be that you're, you're right. I mean, my intention, you know, it's not like I spend hours and hours doing this. Whenever I look at a syllabus, I go over the syllabus and think, okay, are there going to be any, you know, are there going to be any areas where there's a, a, you know, and you can never predict perfectly. Right. But is there a reasonable foreseeable foreseeable chance that, uh, you know, this is going to uh, be material. that's going to be difficult for some people. And, you know, I just pointed it out, it's, I have a, I have a, I have a, I have a paragraph in my, in, in my syllabi, which um, it would take me too long to dig out. But I have a paragraph in my syllabi, which is like a kind of a, a blanket trigger warning syllabus uh, uh, statement. So I okay. have, you know, I personally have never, you know, run against run up against, uh, you know, the, the the kinds of things that you're you're talking about—the revolution needs its children uh, kind of thing. I'm probably too old to be anybody's child at this point, uh, for one thing. So uh, uh, there might be that. <laughs> You know, it's, 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 it's one of those things that one, one should not sort of minimize the extent to which, uh, a, a big white beard and a deep voice, um, uh, <laughs> right. And seven months into pandemic, my, my, my beard is, is, is full on rabbinical, um, But you know, again, I I I don't think you know, it, it It could be that sometimes it will you know, it could be that John H- look in the movie, John Houseman doesn't get any uh you know, for sure John Hausman doesn't get any flack from anybody. So it could be that terrorizing your students is an effective way of of making sure that nobody uh but you know, I, I just don't think that uh again, we're going back to what we were talking about. Uh, a few minutes ago, I think that, uh, you know, what you want is for your students to come out of your class 13 weeks later, having learned something, having having allowed themselves to think some thoughts that they haven't had before and engage in maybe debates that they wouldn't have had uh, outside of your class about issues that... Uh, you know, might be uh, you know a little bit difficult to, to manage, and to do that, you have to create certain condi- certain conditions. There are winning conditions for for referendums, and there are winning conditions for uh, for teaching. And I just you know, I think we agree on this fundamentally, which is that you know uh, anxiety, um, uh, you know, fear, uh, having wounds, having historical wounds, uh, you know, uh, uh, dealt with negligently by. Um, you know, people making quote unquote scientific use of terms are just not winning conditions for, for, for pedagogy. So, um, you know, I'll live with the consequences uh, of, of that belief, whatever they, uh, whatever they might be. Um, because, uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's another thing that I mentioned in the piece that I think it's something that, um, you know, our look McGill, I teach at McGill. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an alum of McGill. McGill is. You know, I, when, when, I, when I die, I want my ashes to be scattered over a slice of Gert's pizza. Uh, <laughs> Done. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I have McGill, you know, I, I am very much a McGill kind of patriot. Uh, but McGill, look, you could fit all of the black um, profs. Uh, you know, who teach at McGill right now? Who have tenured track positions at McGill or tenured positions? You know, in my in my living room. And it's not like I have that big of a living room, right? We we have maybe ten or 20, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's a scandalously small number. So if you're again, you know, our institutions have not always been, and still today are not the most inviting, welcoming students of uh, uh, institutions for, um, you know, uh, students from racialized minorities. You know, they, 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 just, they just aren't. So all that has to be taken into account. You know, I long for the day where, uh, you know, um, uh, racial injustice is a thing of the past, um, and we can then use, you know, terms which at this point will have been completely severed from any uh, actual experience of anybody in the in the class right uh you know it won't be in my lifetime it just won't be in my uh lifetime that that will happen but you know there is a theoretical uh nirvana of social justice where uh you know there is isn't the, this sort of going in um you know uh uh fear on the largely you know some justified fear on the part of racialized minorities that here's another institution McGill or whatever um uh, you know that is going to treat me uh uh, poorly, you know. Um, uh, so we have to take that into account. Institu- you know, institutions of higher learning do not exist in a kind of cultural and social, socioeconomic vacuum. They are parts of the societies that they um, uh, that they belong to, and sometimes, you know, I find that they are even with respect to some of these diversity issues, more regressive than 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 sometimes even private enterprises. You know, um, the 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 main, the, the, the the, the extent to which traditional privilege... I think that's
1: absolutely true because private enterprise has to worry about, first of the all, bottom
2: marketing, yeah.
1: you know, say, selling. They have to worry about customers and they have to worry about lawsuits, right? Which means that, that those are both sort of incentives that, that line up towards, towards good behavior, right? right? right. Uh, and that's, no, I think that's absolutely true.
2: Yeah, so we're you know I mean it took it took uh, it took the events of the summer it took uh, George Floyd it took uh, uh, you know it took these sort of dr- dramatic events for institutions like McGill to finally you know um, decide that this is something anti black racism and its legacies in the institution for example through the uh, you know shocking underrepresentation of, uh, of of black people in the professoriate. It actually you you, you, you can't you got you got to have a plan you got to figure something out on how we're going to address this. It took this long. It took us till twenty twenty. Um, and so if I'm a you know um, a black young adult you know coming into McGill, uh, you know these are facts that are very obvious to me. And again, you were talking about the epistemic, you know the. You know, if you're a white kid coming into a white university and all you see around you are white profs, it's not going to strike you necessarily. You know, hey, how come everybody here is, you know, uh, disproportionately relative to the population, um, you know, white? If you're if you're if you're somebody from a racialized minority, uh, an indigenous person, or a black person, of course you're going to notice it, and it's going to be part of uh, the way in which you um, take on the institution. Um, and I think that that just has to be, you know, uh, uh realize that, you know, uh, th- these debates are happening not against the background of perfect racial justice such that we can you know, stop worrying about, uh, you know, the impacts that, uh, these words have on, you know, people whose lived experience, uh, both of the university and of other institutions is still one of institutionalized uh, racism you know we we're 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 in a, we're in a context in which you know it it is still very much the case um that uh, that that's the context in which these words are being are being used so uh, yeah
1: I, I wonder i wonder this is sort of i wonder how much of this has to do with being unilingual right and and the reason why I say and you know functionally unilingual because I remember my grandparents uh, on my mother's side. They spoke with you know thick British accents to their dying day, and I remember my grandmother. She she moved. They moved here from Manchester in the fifties, and they lived here. And then they ended up moving to the states. And I remember my grandfather. She, my grandmother. She's very funny. And she, she said, you know, there was this great moment, I, I can't say it in her accent, but like she said there was this great moment where I used to always critique everybody's pronunciation of English words and everything. And I had this like this moment where nobody ever like spoke back to me when I said that in Canada. They were all very, because it was on the West Island, right? So everybody was very deferential. Like, yeah. But she went down to the States and somebody actually said to her in North Carolina and Raleigh, you know, you don't own the language anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it was this like really powerful moment where she realized, oh, I don't get to decide what the the language, how it should be spoken anymore. I don't have to, I don't like, I don't have the copyright on that. And I, yep. you know, as I, as I look at all the names of the people who these academics who are signing these petitions, I, I know the ones that I know, they're mainly kind of, um, people who are effectively uh, unilingual, and I think if you, this is my, my my theory here, is that I think that if you're effectively unilingual, you you're very tempted to forget that language is essentially a tool that we use to communicate with each other. Whereas if you're multilingual. You understand, I mean, as Montrealers, you know this, right? You go to a party and we do this little dance, like at first, where we figure out, is your English better than my French? Is, is my French better than your English? And we do this dance and we figure out which language right. is is best for effective communication. And what that means is somebody at that dinner party, in all likelihood, somebody has to step outside of their comfort zone.
2: Yeah.
1: And in in the... In the interests of effective communication, so it's if you're multilingual, as you know most of the world is, uh, you just understand this intuitively that yeah. you you don't get to just spontaneously say whatever the fuck you want to say. Like it, language is not about your comfort zone; it's about effective communication. It's, so if you have to if you have to censor yourself a little bit and check yourself a little bit and not say he gypped me on that sweater. If you have to censor yourself, yes, is that gonna cause you a little bit of discomfort? Is that gonna take you outside of your comfort zone for a little bit until you learn how to do that? Sure. But language is about you communicating with other people. It's not about I, you know, just I, being in your comfort zone. About,
2: it's also about being it's not just being unilingual, but being a unilingual speaker of the dominant language. You know, I, I just had a you know something, uh, an analogy just hit me with um, you know, when when um, across North America, including here in Montreal, people started taking down or defacing historical monuments uh, devoted to, you know, historical figures that, oops, it turns out, uh, you know, we're slave owners or, uh, you know, people who constructed institutions uh, that are deeply, um, you know, discriminatory or racist. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the reactions is we can't negate our history, right? We can't negate our history as if what's going on now is not history, history stops, history is the history of our privilege. And, you know, anything that sort of negates that is the negation of history. Um, But, you know, pointing out to people that, you know, it is a, we are still in history. We are still enacting, um, you know, the historical narrative, part of which was the erection of this statue and part of which is now it's uh, you know uh, being 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 knocked down as we realize that we don't want um, you know our cityscape uh, to be marked uh, by people who we now realize you know perhaps we should have realized it before um, you know don't stand for the kind of society that we want to be living in so um, you know I think that I think that there's something um, there, there's something similar there, you know getting to define what the terms are. Um, in which you're allowed to speak is also a way of um kind of uh expressing a kind of privilege uh that uh we are being asked and here i 'm including myself in the we um to at least take a step back and 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 interrogate uh, and i think that that's an entirely healthy thing um uh so you know i i i um, yeah i am um you know in many ways kind of I think this is a very interesting time uh, to be in uh, universities. For sure, there are uh, going to be excesses. For sure, there are going to be uh, sillinesses. But I think that uh, the university that will come out of, uh, you know, the kind of, you know, sometimes traumatic events that we are part of, will be, will be, will be a, a more inclusive space, will be a space in which, uh, you know, more people than have, has ever been the case will find uh, their place and their voice and their ability to contribute. And, um, you know, uh, I hope I'm still around, uh, you know, long enough to see what uh, what the future holds um, as we kind of uh, find our way through these, um, you know, these, uh, these kinds of situations, which again, I think will, uh, you know, this too shall pass. Yeah. and ho- And hopefully you know we will not be in exactly the same place uh, when we when they pass as we were before um, yeah. i,
1: I don 't know if you heard on the yeah, on the c d c it was cBC daybreak this morning there was this yeah, history teacher from Westmount high, and he was talking about the the new I, I I spent half of one of my classes today talking about this they were the students were just you know completely amazed. Um, this uh, history teacher was talking about how the, the new spec for uh, grade ten history of Quebec and Canada textbook has come out, which of course was a big coup for the very sort of far right conservative uh, group of Quebecois historians who who wrote this thing, and it's it's sort of like if if the Trumpists win another four years. And uh, they get rid of the 1619 Project and they replace it with like a, an incredibly rah, 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 you know, American history curriculum. It would look sort of like this new Quebec history textbook. But one of the, I think it's like a chapter in the book, apparently, is just a, um, a translation of, you know, the famous, like, de uh, Médic uh, the, like, which was translated as white N-words of America. I mean, it could have been translated as white Negroes of America or you know, white Blacks of America, but it was not translated that way. Um, and, you know, I have run on my bookshelf a, a French copy of it and an English translation of it, and, uh there's apparently a chapter right in there. And so this history teacher was on the radio this morning and he was just freaking out. He was like, I can't teach this to kids from little burgundy and like points. This is offensive, but this is like, you know, a government exam that all the students have to take it. And this is my new textbook that I'm supposed to teach. And meanwhile, we have, you know, What is it Wendy Masley who got like fired from the CBC just for saying this word at a meeting. And I have to like teach students with like a chapter in my book that is white N words of America. (laughs) Like, like, what do you, what do you make of this philosopher Weinstock?
2: So I, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm not being, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little bit evasive and say that, uh, you know, I don't know the, uh, the history textbook one thing I will point out and this has been apparently it just came out daniel i, um, I haven 't okay. seen it either so one of the things that you know one of the things that has been discussed in the context of this debate, another way in which this might be an english French thing is um you know this goes back to we've we 've been sort of going all over the place, but coming back to the to the sort of issue that gave rise to this controversy in the first place the uh, English language has a uh, uh, basically two words, um, that, you know, that are, that are etymologically related, uh, the N word, right. There are two N words in English as it were. Um, and there's only one in French. So, um, you know, the, the term of derogation and the term, which is more sort of acceptable are sort of wrapped up into one in French in a way, which are, it's not the case in English, you can dissociate them. Um, and I wonder whether that is partly, uh, what is that, uh, uh, what is what is at issue here? You know, a lot of my colleagues are worried about uh, you know the 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 you know will they be able to talk about Leopold sangor or uh, you know uh, uh, the 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 intellectuals of post colonial uh, French Africa? Uh, and I think that partly it has it just has to do with the fact that um, you know English has this has this has has a way of referring to you know. I'm being, uh, I'm I'm expressing myself poorly. Um, But there are basically two terms in English and only one in French. Um, And uh, uh, the one in French incorporates both, uh, you know, what might be viewed as acceptable in English um, and what is completely unacceptable in English. So I wonder whether that hasn't had a little bit of of an impact on the different ways in which the debate has been received in French Canada and in English Canada.
1: I think it's absolutely part of it. I mean, there's a, that wonderful line in um, Louis C.K.'s uh, stand-up routine, um, Hilarious, where he's talking about like uh, how the. this sort of goes back to what you were saying before, because you were saying that this is something in French, but it's also something in English, where he says, uh, I wrote it down in my notes here, he says, um, Jew is a funny word, because it's, well, it's the only word that is At one and the same time, the polite thing to call a group of people and the slur for the same
2: group. That's that's Uh, right. Most
1: groups groups have a good and a bad word. Uh, Theirs, uh, Jews, same word, just with a little stank on it. (laughs) And it becomes a terrible thing to call a person because you can say he's a Jew and it's fine. But he's a Jew. (laughs) Like that's all it takes. I wish the president, this is when, uh, this is the 2010, it's his stand-up, hilarious, and he says, uh, you know, I wish the president would just slip one into a speech uh, that's just on the border, just to fuck with people's heads, just in the middle, you know, we all got to get along in this country. We need everybody, blacks and whites and Christians and Jews, <laughs>
2: just to love <laughs> well so, you know yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's the point that i was making at the beginning of of my, of that of that of that blurb you know uh done more funny uh which which is absolutely right you know uh it's absolutely right uh you know the 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 and 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 it makes it all the more difficult you know the the, the experience that i recount of actually having trouble almost physical trouble you know uttering the words for a good part of my adolescence just comes from that fact you yourself as a member of the group have gotten sort of screwed by uh you know that's that 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 uh you know that that tone that has been put on it by many people who have used it rather than finding some other term uh you know who've used it to hurl uh insults at you um so yeah no that's uh it's uh uh absolutely absolutely true you
1: think to, to what extent do you think that this uh, this lecturer at the University of Ottawa was basically just uh, and these students who were sort of upset by her use of, of the n word? To what extent do you think they were just sort of drafted into a culture war and that what's going on is like really, it really doesn't have much to do with the actual facts on the ground?
2: I don't know. I mean, I don't know about the individual. Uh, you know, I don't know about the individual uh, uh, cases, and the thing—the thing that I would say is—I have no doubt. I have no doubt. So, you know, the, one of the things that has been playing itself out is, um, you know, that people are reducing the people that they disagree with on this debate to the worst possible expression of that position, right? So the people, we talked about it at the beginning of the discussion, the people who think, well, you know, maybe you should be a little bit careful before you use the N word in class and maybe consider taking it out of your repertoire completely. All of a sudden these people are complicit with the murder of, uh, of the French, uh, uh, professor, and there's probably similar stuff going on on uh, the other side as well, right people who think that well, no, you should be able to use whatever term you want to use in a scientific context in school or being made into you know just appalling you know appalling racists, so you know my view is that that's the uh the beginning of the end. Once we have done that, once we have uh, helped ourselves to uh, the ability to just avoid other people's arguments by questioning their motives or by um, by identifying them with the worst possible manifestation of that position, then you know we've essentially put an end to the discussion. You know, for me, if there's you know if there's a group of like I want to make the classroom comfortable for as many people as I can. If there's two kids in the class who have never heard of wokeness. Who have never heard about the culture wars, but who have, you know, spent their lives, um, you know, having their parents talk about, uh, you know, stories of discrimination and having themselves, uh, heard, uh, racial, uh, slurs set, uh, um, uh, inflicted upon them. You know, I want, you know, the, 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 the experiences of those two people are, um, Important for me, even if there are another bunch of people for whom those positions are kind of somehow connected to um, to uh, uh, an ideology uh, that is, you know, that might be problematic in some ways. Uh, you see what I mean? Um, so yeah, no, uh, I, know, I see I see completely. I, 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 I don't know. I, I have no idea. You know, I, again, at some point you know, we're going to find, we're going to have to find out exactly what happened in the class. Like, you know, for a while I was going down the rabbit hole trying to get, you know, as many accounts of what had actually happened as possible. And there was one account that I read that said, no, no, she didn't say it once. She said it like, 10 times you know like uh she repeated again and again and again um so you know which in a way would make a, a difference so you know i i don't know exactly what happened in that class what i'm concerned with is the fact that it just isn't the case that every black student or other person in the last couple of weeks has come forward and say look you know um yeah, this is a term that is terribly hurtful and it does get in the way of uh, people being able to learn uh, and stuff like that. You know, I want to take those arguments seriously on their face um, and, you know, avoid and hopefully have the same thing done of me, the same courtesy that I'm trying to extend to people with whom I disagree, I hope will be extended uh, to me. I mean, I have, you know, I am the, you know, I, I, I have a, uh I'm 57 years old I'm a card carrying we've talked about this before card carrying <laughs> Rawlsian liberal you know it's hard to find a less radical person than me right uh mm-hmm. I mean, I say I'm a card carrying liberal I actually have the card right
1: uh <laughs> yes you do
2: <laughs> and you know all, all of a sudden I find myself uh being referred to as uh, some kind of guru of wokeness you know uh which you know uh, far from it you know I it's ridiculous
1: it's so, it's yeah and,
2: and, I think we've talked about this in one of our prior discussions. There's um, a kind of conditions for for having civilized discussion is actually listening to the position that's being put forward by the other side and not immediately trying to think of, okay, how can I characterize this person in a way which will disqualify her or him? Uh, because I will identify them with something that is clearly indefensible, and once we start doing that, we might as well just all go home and and you know not talk to one another because there's no real conversation going on anymore. There's strategic positioning, um, you know, uh, and um, you know, so so I, I I wish I hope that when the temperature um, you know the te- when the temperature goes down, and I do think I, I do think that things will. Change when we are looking at each other in the eyes again. When we are in, you know, bars and coffee shops and classrooms and seminar rooms, actually looking across the table at an, at, at an embodied human being, um, you know, I think that our conversations will uh, will change for the better. You know, I really do think that, uh, you know, all Facebook and all Twitter all the time as the only media through which to conduct these conversations in the context of ambient anxiety and emotional exhaustion and depletion is a recipe for just, you know, I mean, like I said, I think at the very beginning, part of me at the beginning thought, you know what, let's talk about this in a year. Let's everybody just, you know, um, be nice to one another, realize each other's vulnerabilities, realize you know the kinds of um, uh, burdens that we're all sort of uh, laboring under with our with our with our kids not being able to lead normal lives and ourselves kind of vaguely anxious all the time, let's just give ourselves a mulligan for this conversation. See you in a year and a half when you know we're all vaccinated and we can venture out into the real world again, and maybe we can have this conversation in a in a in a more productive way. Because um, I really do think that the combination of the 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 you know anxiety, exhaustion, plus um, uh, Facebook and, and Twitter. It's just a perfect storm for uh, you know a conversation which we almost know in advance is going to get toxic pretty quickly. I may be wrong, you know, maybe we just need to wait a few weeks, wait for the temperature to uh, to go down a little bit, and people will start making perhaps slightly more um, you know uh, uh, measured uh, statements. I have had in response to you know the post that I uh, that I put up uh, a week ago or so. People write to me and say, you know what, I may not agree with you, but I've moved a little bit. You know, I, I you know, I, I see something that I didn't see before, um, you know, suggests that there's room for and, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly w- willing to subject myself to, um, you know, the same kind of uh, the same kind of of, of, of self of self critique. Maybe there is something. Uh, that i'm not seeing that uh we have to worry about more than uh more than more than we do um you know uh, well
1: those of you you know for the for our listeners who who can't you know can't which is pretty much all of who can't see your post cuz your post will, for so it was in french but like but the basically what was i think very powerful about it is that It it wasn't, there was no ideology or jargon in it. It was just like a human being responding uh, empathetically and rationally to this situation rather than just sort of picking a side in the culture war and, and, But also not playing that equally stupid game. Well, maybe not equally stupid, but also stupid game where you say, oh, I'm above everything, right? Like, uh, you know, I'm just like this stoic, you know, kind of Spock-like figure that doesn't... It it was neither of those things. It was sort of, I'm uh, I'm not like picking a side in the team sports of the cultural war but here's my like rational, emotional response to what's going on. I think that's what was really powerful is that when you hear somebody who's um, intervening in the discussion and is just not, you know, not responding like a robot, you know, like they're cutting and pasting stuff from, you know, whatever. Yeah, And, And I think that's what we need like much more of. I mean, I wanted to sort of finish off with, uh, with, um, with Dave Chappelle and, and Tanahasi Coates and, uh, and, and Tony Hoagland, because both uh, Tanahasi Coates and Dave Chappelle have in, in recent times, um, talked Dave Chappelle in that just wonderful, wonderful discussion with David Letterman. Yep. I don't know if you've watched it yet, yep. if you've seen it. I Isn't yeah, it just, yeah, yeah. oh my God, it's just amazing. Yeah. But both yeah. he and also ta Coats Coates Ta-Nehisi. On, on a podcast recently, uh, they both really, really stressed the importance of, if we're going to get out of this shit, we need to be, we have to have pathways to redemption. Like we have to let... People, you know, as as Dave Chappelle put it, like he's like, you know, it's like in prison. You know, everybody's everybody's innocent, right? Like, no, you're not. He's like, look, we're in this society that is get it, got all these, you know, this misogyny, homophobia, and right? so We got all this like stuff, right? All this baggage. Like nobody's totally clean. Nobody's totally innocent, and so we need to let people change. We need to sort of allow people to sort of apologize, you know, and this is what I thought, uh, you know, after your friend uh, philosopher, Andrew Potter, right. When he, when he wrote that, that article, which, you know, you know, upset patriots like us, <laughs> like, we felt attacked. Like, so yeah, he said these things about like Quebec and then he was, he apologized in such a completely vulnerable human legitimate way and that was just not okay right it was just like and, and a culture that has no place for redemption um is oh absolutely is, absolutely is a culture you know,
2: that I, that, I, that has no history or future it's what i add the um it's what i add the piece on you know i say look uh you know one of the one of the the noblest things that we do as humans is uh, apologize and accept apologies, right? Uh, the 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 sort of resetting of the relationship on a uh, on on a, on a new grounds. And it's a miraculous thing, in a way, that uh, you know an apology uh, does when it is serious. Sincerely proffered, right? Obviously, there are uh, there are apologies that are sometimes uh, elicited from people for reasons of legal liability. You know, you know, when I was we, we didn't talk about this, but when I when I was basically defamed by the Quebec government for oh, uh, you know, that was in, horrible back in February. Yeah, you know, the, the, the you know I, we won't go into this because this will take us another three hours. But uh, well, can
1: you just can you give a really short version? Yeah, yeah. So it's so actually
2: it's actually really really salient to the discussion. Well, so in February, it feels like, you know, I, actually, interestingly, I talked to a journalist who um, uh, referred to it and said, that happened to you, what, about two or three years ago? And I said, <laughs> I said no, no, look at your old reporting. That happened seven months, eight months yeah, ago.
1: Just right? for our listeners, just so you know, uh, Daniel and I spoke after this happened. And we agreed that he was gonna come on the podcast to talk about it because it was such a big deal. Then the pandemic I know, hit. I know. It, and it, does, it just it just became so completely small.
2: It does feel to me like like a hundred years ago. But anyway, to yes. make a long story short, uh, I was invited to um, give us give some talks in uh, uh, panels that the Quebec government had organized in order to uh, sort of get some guidance on how to reform their ethics and religious cultures course I gave a first one in Quebec City went very well you know had good discussions a few days before I was supposed to give the Montreal one um, a uh, sort of uh, very uh, uh, You know controversialist sort of uh, 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 columnist at uh, journal de Montréal wrote a thing in which allegations were made about things that I uh, was claimed to have said at a lecture at Berkeley 10 years before. To make a long story short, uh, they were taken literally out of context. You know, as you if you watch the lecture, you see that I'm kind of, you know, trying out the position of uh, somebody that I disagree with, as one does when one teaches a philosophy class, you know. Uh, so let's say that... You're uh, steel
1: manning. You're steel manning. You're exactly, sort
2: of, yeah. exactly. 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 Anyway, and it turned into uh, a bit of a drama, actually, uh, the... Uh, he wrote a column, uh, the minister or one of the minister's aides saw the column and said, "Oh my God, we can 't have this guy speaking at our thing by ten o'clock in the morning that morning, as I was walking into the office, I found out that I had been a defamed and b uh, disinvited on that basis from the conference. I uh, you know uh, pushed back, called the lawyer, got some letters of uh uh you know lawyers' letters uh into the right places, and by Sunday or Monday. I had an apology from the um, from the minister, a public apology from the minister. Now, I chose. You know, now was that apology extorted because somebody in the uh, you know legal department of the of the government said, "Hey, you know, You're, you, you've been caught with your pants down. You didn't do your due diligence. You basically, you know." went along with a claim according to which this guy said something that he absolutely didn't say, you're, you're dead to rights. You've got to apologize or else, you know, you're completely liable. Okay. I'll apologize for that fucking, you know, whatever. Uh, or was it a, a sincere thing? I'll never know. I'll never know. It looked
1: a day. Honestly, it looked totally legit to me.
2: You know, I think so. I think so. I think, I think, I think he really did regret it. But you know, the, the point that I want to make is at that point we have a choice, right? Uh, at that point we have a choice. We can either decide to, Um, you know, be cynical about an apology, or we can say, you know what, Um, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, just decide that I'm taking this in the spirit of sincerity and the uh, genuine and uh, legitimate desire to build bridges. And I did. Um, And I even wrote about it uh, a a little bit. And, And, you know, I mean, going back to the case in Ottawa, I think the woman apologized. I think that that's something that should count greatly um, in when one uh, when when one uh, looks at uh, looks at the issue, and it's just you know part of as we as we you know going back to the Dave Chappelle thing, we are the products of our of our messed up culture, and that means that as we you know try to do our best uh, to speak and and to speak and act uh, well we're going to mess up. And, um, you know, if those, if those, if messing up means that we are uh, banished to the ash heap of history, um, you know, that doesn't get us very far. I think that the ability to say, oops, you know, I screwed up. Um, you know, I've learned something here. And, um, uh, you know, we're going to get better at this over time. Um, you know, I'd much rather live in that kind of a society than in a society that um, banishes people.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I I wrote a pretty harsh review of Tanehasi Coates's Coates' Between the World and Me, but I read every single word he writes. I find him absolutely, I, I love him. I, I mean, I really, really like him. And we also, we have a lot of uh, things in common in terms of our tastes, right? And one of the things we have in common in what we like is that we both absolutely adore the poet uh, tony hoagland right right he it 's one of his favorite poets in the world, right Tony Hoagland is uh, you know died recently quite yeah. quite suddenly of cancer, but uh, he was in the, this podcast where he was talking about redemption and the importance of it he He mentioned um, you know one of his favorite Tony Hoagland poem, which he he knew this poem off by heart, which I just kind of love that um but he uh, it 's a poem. Which I'm gonna I'm gonna read you the first half of it right now, and it's called Dear John. And he said, "We need more of this uh, if we're gonna make our way out of this mess." And so the poem is uh, uh, called Dear John. It's from uh, uh, one of his uh, one of his books called What Narcissism Means to Me. <laughs> it's an amazing title. It's a great, uh, two th- yeah, 2003. Uh, so he says, uh, "I never would have told John that faggot joke." If I had known that he was gay, I really shot myself on the foot with that Neanderthal effort to make a witty first impression. I thought he was just a skinny guy from New York City with clean hands and allergies. Come to Vermont, he knew mainly from the pictures on the side of a gallon can of log log cabin maple syrup. I could tell he was nervous about how real the maples really were and the guys in their flannel shirts and dirty hiking boots so I made my tasteless remark to put him at ease. That was before male idiocy had been officially recognized as a chemical imbalance. (laughs) But he forgave me and let me be his friend. And if I can say so without sounding patriotic about myself, there's something democratic about being the occasional asshole. You make a mistake, you apologize, and everybody else breathes easier.
2: Perfect. He just—it's I mean, just so perfect.
1: He's like you know, this is just—he goes, "This is exactly what we need more." Of, this is the guy, sort of, you know, Tony Hogan's a straight white guy. He's sort of acknowledging a situation where he said some stupid shit and it offended somebody, um, but um, you know, there was like a space opened up to apologize and feel shitty, and they end up like,
2: "Let me be my um, let him let me be his friend."
1: yeah and then the poem i mean the poem goes on and it's uh, but it it finishes uh finishes off with him talking about and this is this is actually this is not fiction it's actually a, a guy that's a very who spoke at his funeral who's a very close friend of his, but you know that's what we want we want redemption and and reconciliation and friendship to be the end result of this but yeah and you know, and I think that's uh that's sort of the the end endpoint, um, but to get there, <laughs> we're gonna have to. Uh, I guess we're just gonna have to sort of step outside of our comfort zone and talk about, um, you know, things that maybe don't make us,
2: you know, you know. There's something. I mean, you know, there's something liberating about realizing that um, you know everybody is liable to the uh, you know the odd screw up, and that it's okay that we. You know, we 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 walk together, and we pull each other. Uh, we pull each other up when we stumble, and part of the way we do that is by uh, it's by exactly what Holman. You know we we ask for forgiveness, and we are granted that forgiveness and you know we get to walk another mile um and you know if we either feel that we're too proud to do the asking or somehow too uh you know incense to do the acceptance, then um you know there's just going to be a lot of bodies left along the side of the road, and we don't get very far
1: yeah, well, it's like it's like Tennesseeallahassee said you know in the, in the interview he's like you know think about all the other ways that Hoagland could have responded. He could have said, oh, come on, it was just a joke. What's your problem?
2: Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: You know, like, oh, come on, I didn't, I don't actually, like, you know, in my heart, I'm not, like, I've got, like, lots of gay friends. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah What's yeah, your problem? Some... Yeah. He goes, there's all these other responses he could have had, which would have just built walls and defensiveness. Yeah. But instead, he's like, oh, fuck, sorry.
2: Yeah, we should be reading yeah. more <laughs> poets and less philosophy, baby.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the oh, podcast. I, I, I love pleasure. the fact that we could end on a, on a beautiful note of... Redemption. I put
2: the virtual phone and go read some Tony Hogan right now.
1: Yeah. And, and as I said to you, uh, Nicholas Christakis is going to be coming on the podcast soon I had to talk about his new book. And I would really love it if. Um, if you I'd would love to, I'd love participate. to participate. Uh, but one of the things, you know, I'm about halfway through the book, uh, so far. And one of the things he says, which I was like, Oh man, I got to tell Daniel this. You probably know this already, but he's plugged into all of the various kind of international networks that are, that are trying to deal with this pandemic. And he says we've got another year and a half.
2: Yeah, I think that that's right. Uh, I think that that's right. You know, there's a there's a colleague of mine. We 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 uh, there's a colleague of mine at, at uh, McGill, John Kimmelman, who's just done a funny little study, which I think is very revealing. He said, you know, you hear all of this uh, conflicting science about you know when the vaccine will be ready. Some people say six months. Some people say a year. What if you kind of asked fifty scientists and sort of averaged it out? You know, sort of wisdom of the crowd, as uh, of the scientific crowd. Um, and the, uh, you know, so he, he circulated this questionnaire about half of the scientists that he, uh, interviewed feel fairly certain that there's going to be at least another hiccup in the production of the vaccine. There is going to be some kind of safety concern that's going to be re- required that they take a couple of steps back, um, you know, um, and that that's going to delay things by, uh, by a few months. So, yeah, no, I th- and, you know, it is going to be the most massive public health, initiative in the history of humanity to roll this thing out and vaccinate a sufficient number of the world's population to sort of achieve a kind of global uh immunity and that doesn't happen you know i mean the fantasies of the america this american president saying that we've got the army to uh you know i mean it is going to just take a lot of time so um yeah a year and a half you know i have kind of in my mind Uh, maybe maybe
1: it wasn't news for you but it was totally news to me and i was like so bummed out for hours after i read this
2: yeah yeah i was
1: like i and he also says we should he says uh you know for the united states at least he says uh we're going to it's going to be half a million people that are going to die yeah yeah i mean i was just like completely i sent a message to our mayor and I said, "Oh, I'm reading this, you know, new book by Nicholas Kristof. He says we've got another, like, you know, conservative estimate. We've got another year and a half of this." Yeah, yeah. And I got a response back very quickly. Uh, yes, I know it's horrible. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so if she, I she, a, she
2: clearly is getting the same memos as if you. If I could so. sign a paper right now saying, you know what, January 2022, we can go back to your concerts and 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 go to bars and stuff, I would sign that paper right now. Because uh, you know that that strikes me as uh, you know about as optimistic uh, about as optimistic as we can be right now. It's not going to be next summer. It's not going to be um, anyway. Better to take it a day at a time because thinking about the scope of it is a little bit. Uh a little bit depressing. How are
1: extroverts like us going to survive, Daniel?
2: It's very difficult. I actually do find it. I actually do think, you know, wish that I had somehow over the course of my life cultivated a more. You know, my father always said of me uh, that I lacked zitzfleisch, which is a wonderful Yiddish expression that means flesh upon which to sit, right? Uh, because I always felt like, you know, restless and, uh, you know, I've been here long enough, let's go over there now. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, when I think about how the, the proportion of the time that I've spent in my house and actually exactly where I am right now in my little corner uh, of, the, of the house where i sort of set up my study, um, you know, it, it is not my natural or your natural way of being in the world, but um, we'll have to figure it out. Yeah, just
1: for so our listeners know, Daniel is the kind of guy you see him at every film festival, every you know, like sort of pop music festival, every new art show at the museum. He's he's like a total culture buff <laughs> you're, yeah. like, you're you're like you're so into going out you go out more than like any of the teenagers i know i mean and this know, must be horrible for you You know
2: i i say I, i've said this dozens of times but you know a lot of people feel like their uh emotional and psychological equilibrium depends on doing yoga you know two or three or four <laughs> times a, a week and i get it i respect it you know I mean, for me, uh, you know, uh, driving over or, 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 you know, biking over to uh, the Sala or Casa de Popolo to catch an hour, you know, a set of music only takes an hour, right, is the psychological and emotional equivalent of yoga for other people. People are still able to do yoga, but, you know, I don't get my concerts for at least another year and a half. So it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. I should say, um, you know... um, this is going to be probably aired too late for this, but cinema fest, film festivals have really done a very good job. The uh, the Festival du Nouveau Cinema, the Festival of New Cinema, is on right now, and you can get an amazing deal. Uh, it's only the, the films are only available for another three days. But um, you know, I've watched about fourteen movies so far uh, at the uh, you know sitting in front of my screen. Um, from around the world, so you know, film is the one thing that can survive. Uh, the, the The conditions for watching movies uh, are can can be acceptably sort of reproduced. Whereas for music, there are all these concerts that people have been doing from their living rooms that you can watch on your screens. And for me, it is part of the experience to be in community, and so uh, it's a it's a sort of sad, uh, sad uh, simulacrum of the real thing.
1: Yeah, it's actually so sad. I, I can't even do it. I tried it like I think maybe three times total, no. and it was it was worse than than the absence. It like, was it was it was not even like it, yeah. it was. It actually just made me really depressed because it
2: was worse than the than not. Because it refers to something. It refers to something that you know isn't happening. Whereas just the, you know forgetting about the fact that that thing isn't happening is somehow easier than having its. You know, its its existence sort of constantly uh, uh, alluded to by these attempts online at recreating the conditions of. Uh, uh, of uh, so yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't done that Yeah, I,
1: I likened it. You know, after the second time, I was talking to my sister about this. I, I likened it to, you know, we we were going over like some the, some old kind of uh, videotape, which we were like VCR tapes, like uh, VHS that, that we were like putting into digital, and we found this little clip. Of uh, our friend Suzanne, who's dead, she died of an overdose like oh. a number of years ago in BC. And you know, one of my oldest friends and stuff like that. And like, uh, we found this clip of her, and it's just like her still alive and talking. And it bummed us out like so so much. Oh. Right, and that's what watching that kind of uh, living room music shows. It's just, it's it just makes you miss what's not
2: there. So much I'll, more. I'll see you at the salad in a year and a half.
1: Yeah. All right. Anyway, have a great time and I will get in touch with you for the
0: details about the Nicholas Christakis thing. It would be a pleasure. All right. Take care, man. Take care.